For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, it's been a while since we've seen him, but we're thrilled to have him back. Another of our great Young Voices contributors, Christopher Barnyard, London School of Economics guy. Again, they don't let people just walk in there. That's a very prestigious school. He's got all kinds of great writing credits, including this piece in the Wall Street Journal somewhere I haven't gotten into yet, but I'm going to keep trying real hard at it. Uh, Chris, great seeing you again, my friend. How have you been, sir? Yeah, been good. Thanks for having me on. Fantastic. Good to see you again. Uh, half American and half Belgium and lived in Europe. Glory, what a combination. Yeah, no, it's been it's been uh, interesting moving from from Europe and then to the UK and then to the US. So it's been a it's been a whirlwind. Let's actually just start there for a second before we get into the nuclear stuff, because um, people are always wanting to compare America and Europe when it comes to things like energy policy, nuclear policy, things like this. I was the reverse. I grew up in America. And then when I was in the military, I lived in Germany two different times. So I got to see it from that respect. Talk about that real quick, though, especially since you do political and cultural commentary now, how that shapes you when you go overseas, in your case, live overseas and then come over here, how that shapes you and changes kind of a broader perspective, because I know that really, really changed how I saw the world. Yeah, of course. I think one of the interesting things about growing up in Europe is obviously the countries are so much smaller. And so you're much more exposed to different cultures very quickly. So I grew up speaking three languages and was just very much uh, directly confronted with other cultures and visiting other countries, whereas America as a country is the size of a continent. Um, and when it comes to to something like energy policy, I think that also has an impact. Whereas in the US, you have abundant natural resources that really we've been able to tap and, and has helped America become the superpower in the world. Um, in Europe, you you countries are smaller. You have fewer resources. There's more demand. Like there's more competition between should this be agricultural land, should this be energy production, should this be homes, whatever it might be. Um, and I think as a result, in a way, politicians have actually um, become quite idealistic rather than realistic when it comes to these kinds of things. And so instead of um, understanding that, for example, with energy, that producing your own energy is is a good thing, like the U.S. has done. They've, they've actually been overly idealistic about that and said, oh, we can just import it from other places. It just happened to be that a lot of the energy they've been importing has been from Russia or from the Middle East, uh, places like that. Now that's starting to shift to America. But the reality is that a lot of Europe is reliant on other countries rather than on themselves for their energy. And they're starting to feel the feel the pinch of that. I actually think it's important that we start there because something that people miss out when they compare America and Europe is exactly what you were saying. When you live there, like, you know, it's a five hour drive for me to go to another state in some places in America, if not further. 
five hour drive when I lived in Frankfurt, man, I could be, I could be in Holland. I could be in Paris. I could be down in the Alps in the Tyrol. Like it's like going state to state over there. So I think you hit on something here when we're talking about European policies like energy, you need to not think of it as other countries the way we do in America where we're more isolated. It really is like states. They're more compact. They're more. This has a practical effect on how their policy is. I think that's something maybe the American audience and the Western audience misses out on how Europe does stuff. Is that a fair way to put it, you think? Yeah, I think absolutely. And, and the smallness, um, really like the competition for land is a huge thing in America. If you look at Texas, which is uh, obviously the biggest oil and gas producer in the U.S., it's an enormous state. It's like a state almost like the size of like half of Europe, pretty much. Whereas in, in Europe, like Belgium, where I grew up, is one of the most densely populated countries in the world because of how small it is and how many people there are. So it's obviously not as easy to just go and uh, have vast swathes of land to explore your natural resources. You have other demands for it. And I think that's a, a huge factor in Europe. Let's talk nuclear real quick, because it's all over the headlines. Not because of nuclear, but because of the alternatives. We know what's going on in Ukraine, the illegal war of aggression that Vladimir Putin is doing. Vladimir Putin is weaponizing. He's doing this because of that energy. We have the data now. They're still making money on their energy exports, even with the war in Ukraine, which is just a startling statistic. But everything that's going on geopolitically right now is because winter is coming. General Winter, we always talked about the Russian army's greatest general, General Winter. This is a new twist on that because he's using energy, but that didn't happen in a vacuum. That happened in a sequence. And when it comes to Western Europe, the old Western bloc, they kind of set themselves up to get in this predicament, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, there there really has been a, a very deliberate and strategic effort by Russia to make the European continent um and especially the EU dependent on Russian fossil fuels. So you saw a lot of countries like Germany um, started kind of closing down their natural gas production. They started closing down their nuclear plants um, and they, they figured, well, well, we'll replace that with renewables. Uh, and if not renewables, we'll just buy oil and gas from somewhere else, in this case, Russia. But the interesting thing is that there's actually a lot of reports coming out that um, the Russians and and kind of the the Russian uh, propaganda machine is is very good at infiltrating countries and spreading disinformation and kind of actually supporting causes that would be damaging to those other countries. And we actually found a lot of uh, evidence that Russia has been involved in funding anti nuclear and anti natural gas campaigners um, across Europe because it suits Russia for these countries to become reliant on Russia rather than on themselves. And so what we've seen right now is uh, Russia has been building up reserves of, of money uh, for a while now, where they knew when they invaded Ukraine, there would be the inevitable consequences, sanctions, economic isolation, all that uh, stuff. But because they have such a stranglehold energy-wise over Europe, they've uh, been able to weather those consequences. And that's been a very strategic and deliberate effort. Yeah. And to the point, I talked about living in Germany. The first time I lived in Germany, Gerhard Schroeder was the chancellor of Germany. He was on the board of one of the Russian uh, energy companies and a lot of malfeasance there that we now goes back a ways. This is very deliberate. It's strategic. But and you've touched in it on your piece in The Wall Street Journal. We're going to link to it. Please read the entire piece. Make sure you share it with your friends. This is starting to cause some movement in some very unexpected places in Europe, Germany's still dragging their feet. Of course, Schultz is still new to office, so that's a little bit different situation. Belgium, you talk about their Green Party. The Dutch, who are always very, very uh, environmentally conscious, they're starting to make some noise. 
Talk about some of the other countries that we don't often talk about in geopolitics, but we're seeing some movements on the energy front here, aren't we? Yeah, we are. And really what, what we're seeing is we're seeing three crises come together. We're seeing kind of the geopolitical crisis of what's happening in Ukraine, and we've talked about that. You're seeing a little bit of an economic crisis right now. Um, the Biden administration doesn't want to admit that we're in a recession, but we are pretty much in a recession. And um, economically, with inflation, gas prices, um, a lot of the West is and around the world is, is hurting. So there's this economic crisis. Uh, but then the third crisis is um, kind of our, our targets to tackle climate change and to reduce our emissions and to move towards cleaner energy. And for a long time, countries were overly idealistic about how we could uh, continue having strong economies, being um, uh, energy independent, but then also tackling climate change. And the reality is by shutting down natural gas, by shutting down nuclear plants and relying on fo Russian fossil fuels, you're not going to achieve that. And so a lot of countries like uh, Belgium, like the Netherlands, uh, but really countries all over the world have been forced to realize that if they want to have a stable and secure supply of energy, they want it to be clean, and they want to strengthen their economies, they can't do that without nuclear power. Yeah, put your Belgium hat on for just a second. Uh, of course, Brussels is the center of the EU, so it's a little bit different beast anyway. But a country like Brussels, or like, uh, you know, the Netherlands, that aren't on the front lines of the Ukraine stuff, but they're intricately tied to the rest of Europe, what are the common folks there thinking about all this right now? Because they they think differently than Americans. We're very independently thought. Europe is a little different. They understand that this is all interconnected. Beyond the headlines and the noise of it, how are they seeing this situation? Like you said, this is actually three crises kind of meeting at the middle on a lot of things. This is stuff, they know these are crises. Like they don't, this isn't a surprise to any of them. What are they thinking as they look at this environment right now? Well, I think the the evidence from from Belgium, I'll also add the Netherlands because they're two very similar countries, and and my my father's actually Dutch, so I, I know both countries pretty well. Uh, but what they're what they're seeing right now is obviously they're shocked at what's happening in Ukraine, um, and then I can imagine from the U.S. it's a little further for us to look at this, be like, oh well, like that's a terrible thing, but we're still like a continent and an ocean away. But if you're in Belgium and if you're in, in the Netherlands, you're still actually like relatively close to. Um, to like what's happening and, and uh, obviously Belgium and Netherlands were, were important scenes in, in both world wars that happened on the European continent. So they're certainly kind of spooked about this. But at the same time, they're, they're seeing um, really the reality of bad energy policy come to fruition. Um, prices, energy prices are going up immensely. Inflation is up immensely. Um, they're not even sure they'll have enough energy reserves to get through the winter. Um, and at the same time, they don't want to fund the war machine of Vladimir Putin. Um, and so what's happened in Belgium is uh, the Green Party um, had been campaigning very heavily to shut down Belgium's remaining nuclear reactors. Um, the Green parties around the world tend to be pretty anti-nuclear, which which is something I don't really understand. But uh, but they are. And they just realized that, well, if we want to make sure we don't buy Russian fossil fuels and we want to make sure that we're tackling climate change and our people have affordable energy, we have to keep these nuclear plants open. So the, the Belgian Green Party did a huge U-turn um, and are extending the life of the country's remaining two reactors uh, by a decade now. Um, the Netherlands, uh, which uh, also is experiencing these war-induced energy short shortages, um, are now actually hoping to construct two new plants, and they're actually pressuring the German government to try and keep their plants open. So you're kind of seeing this interesting movement in European politics towards 
understanding that you really can't do any of these things without nuclear energy. Yeah, and the attitude the attitude is important here because we know the policy arguments, we know the environmental arguments, we know the fiscal arguments. But at the core of this, people just have a weird thing with nuclear for whatever reason. And you covered in your piece, of course, Fukushima in Europe. Of course, there's plenty of people with lived experience with Chernobyl where they thought that might do really bad damage to Europe and did in some respects. Uh, of course, Three Mile Island here in America, even though that was actually a success story when you actually dig into the technicals of it. People are just weird about nuclear. Is that attitude change is going to be just as important as any ideological or policy pitches, right? Because the people's got to be ready to move there to move on it, right? Yeah, I mean, you kind of see that in Germany actually right now is because of the current crisis, Germans are realizing that the situation they have right now is just really untenable. And so opinion polling in Germany has actually shifted to the extent that a majority of Germans right now support keeping their last nuclear plants open. Um, the CDU, the, the party that actually campaigned under Angela Merkel and then successfully uh, agreed on the legislation to shut down all of the nuclear plants in Germany, they now are publicly saying maybe we should keep them open. And obviously they're, they're, they're no longer solely in power. And so you have, you have the coalition government there, which is still very much kind of uh, against this idea of keeping the nuclear plants open. But really what you're seeing is that uh, in places like Germany, places like Belgium, public opinion is starting to turn to in favor of nuclear energy simply because they're being forced to. Yeah. Christopher Barnard uh, joining us on Hertel. We're going to get more into the nuclear part of this. We're going to continue to talk about his great piece in Wall Street Journal. It's not just Europe, uh, Asia and the Pacific Rim. A lot of questions about nuclear right here in the U.S. We're going to come closer to home, talk about some things, including current legislation up for debate. Might be some movement towards nuclear. Going to be talking about that. Christopher Barnard, Young Voices contributor, great writer, great guy. Going to continue with him on Young Voices right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Christopher Barnard's joining us, a great Young Voices contributor. Happy to have him. He's writing in the Wall Street Journal about nuclear power and the energy crisis. Worldwide energy crisis is no other way to put it because we're seeing it all over the place. Um, let's go to the Pacific Rim for a second. Uh, we see what's happening in Sri Lanka. Tangentially, we see what's happening in Africa. 
when when you can't get oil and gas into a country, really bad, ugly things happen in a hurry. Japan's a lot more stable, of course, but they have that specter of Fukushima. But even with Japan, they're now talking about, and you know, we have the Godzilla culture, of course, which Godzilla is the metaphor for screwing around with splitting the atom and blah, blah, blah. Even they are like, okay, we've got to get serious about this nuclear thing. That's kind of a title shift, isn't it? Yeah, it is absolutely, and and you know, with with the the accident in Fukushima was uh, what many countries around the world experienced as a wake up call as to the dangers of nuclear power. But as you mentioned earlier, actually, similar to Three Mile Island, Fukushima was in many ways actually a success story for nuclear energy. No one died from the nu- from the reactor meltdown. the The only people that that died were from from the uh, the forced evacuation, and unfortunately. But that had mostly to do with a tsunami, not with the kind of inherent dangers of nuclear energy. Um, but it spooked a lot of countries. So Japan kind of fully denuclearized. Uh, it inspired countries like Germany to also denuclearize. But what, we, what you're seeing right now because of this crisis, um, the, the Japanese energy minister recently uh, admitted that their 2030 climate emissions goal is based on restarting up to 30 nuclear reactors. Um, just by this winter, they bring they they plan to bring nine nuclear reactors fully online so that they have enough energy to get through the winter. And so you're really seeing that the country that almost led this denuclearization, this kind of nuclear phobia around the world, is actually the one that is turning to nuclear out of necessity um, faster than anyone could have imagined. It's not just Japan, which is, of course, one of the leading economies and leading technology uh, countries emerging uh, economies, Indonesia, Vietnam, the Philippines, they're all investing in nuclear energy. Uh, there's also a subheading here, though, because one of the world we talk about nuclear energy as being a clean fuel and we should because I don't I don't think you can honestly talk about environmentalism without talking about nuclear energy. I just don't think you can. But one of the world's greatest polluters in China, they're actually quietly starting to fund a lot of these foreign uh, new nuclear energy products. That's going to be an interesting dynamic to keep an eye on, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think really what China is realizing as well is that um, reliable, affordable, clean energy is crucially important in the future. And no other source of energy provides it as well as nuclear does. And so they're investing hugely in building nuclear plants in the U.S. Um, they've got hundreds of nuclear plants planned that, or that are already being constructed uh, but they're not just doing it in the U.S. They're doing it in other countries as well because they're realizing that if they can make these other countries reliant on Chinese-built energy infrastructure, then the Chinese government has enormous leverage over them, very similarly to the leverage that Putin has over 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 Europe right now. And so, really, we're seeing that um, China, a country that everyone looks to as like the worst emitter in terms of uh, carbon dioxide, is now also one of the biggest investors in clean energy in the world. And we simply can't afford to fall behind on that. Yeah, let's bring this home to America. You just talked about Japan building uh, more nuclear reactors. They want to build 12 of them. Uh, The opposite is true here. We're closing them. Since 2012, we've closed a slew of them. California is down to one. Diablo Canyon is actually the picture on your piece in the Wall Street Journal. Now, uh, even California, as far left as it can get sometimes, they're even like, no, 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 don't shut this thing down. You're going to crash the economy. Uh, what has, we understand the three mile Island stuff. This has really been mostly regulatory, uh, crushing of an industry. When we talk about nuclear power, why we haven't built new ones since basically the seventies, right? 
Yeah, I mean, there was obviously after after Chernobyl and then after Fukushima, there's there were just was a lot of apprehension. And after, obviously, Three Mile Island as well, a lot of apprehension about nuclear energy in the U.S. And so you have the 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 regulatory agency in charge of this, which is called the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Um, and for a 30 year period um, between the 1970s and 2012, they didn't approve a single new nuclear reactor license, which meant that we been, didn't build any new nuclear we weren't expanding or modernizing this crucial energy infrastructure. Um, and and even for the, the reactors that have been approved since, um, it takes years and millions of dollars to get anything through the NRC. Um, recently, there's a, a company called NewScale, which I also mentioned in the article. Uh, they're building a small modular reactor, in fact, the first commercial um, small modular reactor, but it took them six years and a 12,000 page application to get through the NRC. And they reported that it, they estimate it costs about half a billion dollars for them to um, get their application and design certified. And that's just incredibly burdensome on any company that wants to build new technology and that wants to expand infrastructure in this country. Um, and so we need to look at expanding uh, of um, making these timelines much faster, expediting the approval, but also making these regulations um, much more sensible so that we're not holding back this crucial energy source. And even with all Christopher Barnard joining us, even with all of that, we are seeing billions of investment in nuclear right now. Small modular reactors are kind of the hot ticket right now. Next generation, uh, they're trying. There's actually quite a bit of research into some stuff that's not ready to build, but off in the foreseeable horizon in the area of nuclear, especially you know being able to maybe put it in like rural areas, things like this, a little bit more portable stuff. Uh, Bill Gates is involved in this. New scales involved in this. There's still, even with all that going on, I got to imagine if they're pouring billions into it, even with all that upfront cost you just talked about, even a modest change in regulatory would probably really open the floodgates on this, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, like you say, the private sector is very interested in investing in this. And also, uh, to to the Biden administration's credit, they have been openly pro-nuclear. Um, and you do have kind of a little bit more of a pro-nuclear bipartisan consensus on Capitol Hill. And so there are uh, a lot of bills talking about how can we incentivize this? How can we um, make sure that uh, we're leveling the playing field between different energy sources? Because the reality is that nuclear has been left behind with a lot of policies that have come out of out of D.C. And so I, I do think it is it is very positive And many companies are investing billions into this advanced technology, including fusion technology, uh, which is very exciting. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm very bullish on nuclear, but there are some important policy steps that need to be taken um, to ensure that we can actually build and build on time. You touched on it in your piece because you talked about anti-nuclear activists. How much of this is a cultural generational thing? Because we're now 30 some years post Cold War. People aren't growing up. Most of the you know 30s and 40s and early 50s working adults. They didn't grow up under the fear of a nuclear weapon dropping out of the sky on them as the previous generation did. They didn't really grow up uh, with a working knowledge, a fear of this stuff the way the previous generation did. You talk about the nuclear activists. That just isn't really that much of a thing now because people, I think, are a little more informed. Like we spoke about, about there's just no way you're going to have more electric everything without more electricity. And if you're going to have clean electricity, there's nothing better than nuclear how much of this do you think is just going to be kind of a generational shift where the new generation doesn't have the priors and they have a little bit more knowledge of how it works? Is that kind of the thing that's tipping this all of a sudden, do you think? 
I think it's a little bit of that. I, I definitely like the polling does show that younger people tend to be more positive towards nuclear energy. Interestingly, men tend to be twice as likely to support nuclear energy as women. Um, but broadly speaking, there is that generational gap, uh, which I do think plays a role in this. Uh, but I also think like uh, what I was talking about before, just reality, just like cold, brutal, hard reality is forcing people to to accept that this is something we need to consider, even if they might be apprehensive about some of the risks. And so you see uh, Senator, Di Senator Dianne Feinstein from California was anti-nuclear for a lot of her career, wanted Diablo Canyon to shut down. And she's an older lady and now she wants Diablo Canyon to stay alive because she realizes it's our only option. Um, so that is really a, a, an important factor. And the final thing I'll mention is with these next generation nuclear designs and reactors, um, the small modular reactors is designs by NuScale or TerraPower, which is Bill Gates' company, or even Oklo, which are building, they're building a, a micro reactor, which is even smaller. Um, I think the image of nuclear as an old, outdated technology is changing to something that is forward looking, that is exciting, that is innovative. Um, and I think that as we build more and more of those reactors, and that's more the image of nuclear, you have to look up some of the images of the of the designs. It looks super cool and futuristic. I think that's going to help uh, change some of the public perception as well. Also, let's go to a practical level to wrap this up, because this is a lot of theory and this is a lot of, you know, geopolitics and things like that. And people can kind of get lost in it. If you could do these small scale nuclear reactors. I'm thinking places like Appalachia. I'm thinking about the West where the uh, population is very diverse and you need, you know, just the physical moving of energy between two places, you know, you lose a lot of it. Um, the Pacific Northwest, places like this that have environmental issues. If you could get these small scale reactors into these local communities, what a game changer, not just environmentally, but also potentially economically, because now all of a sudden a place like Appalachia you could get people in there that want to run businesses because their energy would be a lot cheaper. You could get them out in the Middle West where all that land you were talking about that's so controversial, plenty of it out there and cheap, relatively speaking. On a practical level, this could be a very important cultural, communal, and also economic thing for these communities, couldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and there's a really interesting st statistic, which is that um, for old coal plants that are shutting down, 75% of the skills necessary to run a coal plant are directly transferable to running a nuclear plant. And so you have, like you mentioned, Appalachia and, and West Virginia, um, but also some places out West in Colorado and Wyoming and et cetera, you have old, old coal plants that are being shut down, partly because of economic reasons, partly because of climate and pollution reasons. And there's still that infrastructure, there's still that, that skill set, there's a community built around it. And if you can transfer that community to uh, retrofitting a nuclear plant, uh, a small modular reactor on that old coal plant, 75% of those skills are transferable. So those people can, can learn the extra skills and just be directly plugged in to what they've been doing for a long time, which is supporting uh, energy in their community. And that's an incredible economic boom, but also it'll help with a lot of the the um, mental health and, and other problems that we're seeing in a lot of those communities that are being left behind. The final thing I'll say on that is uh, states are starting to wake up to that. West Virginia recently repealed its ban on nuclear energy. Um, uh, there's Idaho, which are building uh, new scales reactors. You have uh, Wyoming, which is commissioned a study into retrofitting um, coal plants with nuclear energy. Um, and then I actually testified in front of the Colorado Senate a few months ago uh, in favor of a bill 
that was being introduced to perform a similar study in Colorado about the, the future of small modular reactors. Unfortunately, the, the bill got uh, tanked by some anti-nuclear uh, Democrats in, in the Colorado uh, legislature, but I'm sure they'll reintroduce it and hopefully there'll be another opportunity to kind of show how important this is. And given the current context, it stands a better chance of passing this time. Yeah, Christopher Barnard, uh, outstanding stuff today. Uh, let's get to the really important issue here, though. Uh, this is a heavy topic, but there's something more important. You're half American, half Belgium. I've got a foolproof way to know which half overtakes the other half here. Um, Pomate Fritz, are we going mayonnaise or ketchup? Got to be ketchup. Oh, so the American side wins out. Uh, that's French fries for those of you from Logan. Don't know <laughs> what we're talking about. These things are amazing. But over there, if you order fries, you get mayonnaise with them. They don't give you ketchup, do they? So I was really curious. Well, interestingly, there's a there's a type of ketchup which actually came out of Germany, but it's very popular in the Netherlands and Belgium as well, which is called curry ketchup, which yes. is like a spicier form of ketchup, and that's the best. I've got it. Uh, I got the green topped ones though, because that red top one's a little rough with all my GI issues. But I've got it in the cabinet. I got to get it off Amazon. I love me curry ketchup. I love to throw a, especially like a bratwurst or something on a bun with curry ketchup. Exactly. That's the stuff. Big fan of curry ketchup, something I brought back from Germany. Uh, Works is the brand, I believe. But yeah, make sure you get the green one. The red one's got a little kick to it, uh, the red cap <laughs> ones. But uh, yes, sir, that's in my pantry right now, I promise you. Christopher Barnard, we're going to have you back. Uh, fantastic information. Love talking to you. This topic is just, I, I especially like, like we said, winter's coming. This is going to be a big, big topic as winter rolls around. Let folks know where they can follow you until we get you back on Herdtel again, your social media, where you're writing and what you've got going on, my friend. Sure. So you can follow me on my Twitter at uh, Chris Barnard DL. Um, so you can just see a lot of my writing will be there. Also, the organization I work for, the American Conservation Coalition. Um, you can look, look us up uh, online. Also on Twitter, it's ACC underscore national. Um, so a lot of our, our work will be there. And yeah, we're, we're just very excited about promoting nuclear in the future, but also just broad common sense energy and climate policies that balance economic prosperity with protecting the environment. I think that's something that most Americans can get behind. So uh, yeah, check us out and uh, and support us if you want. Yeah, we've had a couple of folks associated with ACC on. They're always great. Uh, that old term we used to use, stewardship of the environment. It's something that's catching on in conservative circles in practical ways. Y'all do good work. We greatly appreciate it. Get into that curry ketchup, folks. It's real complicated. You take ketchup and you put curry powder in it to taste and mix. Very hard to do. Let it sit a little while. Christopher Barnard, this was great, sir. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. We'll talk again real, real soon. Thanks, man. Yes, sir. know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile 
and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.